Is it possible that we've been living far below what God intended for us for 2,000 years? And I've read quite a bit of the early church fathers in recent weeks. And hearing some of the regular miracles that these guys walked in, things that we would call miracles were normal lifestyle to these folks. Matter of fact, it was the lifestyle of Jesus that they emulated. They weren't simply imitating Jesus. They had stepped into something in the term, terms of the new covenant, what we call the Christic covenant around here. The covenant of Christ, the, the uh, awareness that our oneness with God had opened up, and let me just use the term realms, uh, realms of access, empower and authority that made the supernatural power of God, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that now dwells in us physically, that same power was now made available to the early church. I read stories of people who raised the dead on a regular basis. Uh, people who walked on water just simply because it was there. People who worked and and read and uh, and just did life in the evenings, not by the glow of a candle or any any light source other than themselves, by the glow of their own countenance would would read and work into the night, simply because the glory of the Lord shone upon them so deeply. We live in a wonderful, wonderful modern age that is often vilified and cursed because of all of its all of its complexity, but the reality is so many writings that were lost for centuries are coming to light and being digitized and made available to us uh, from from Orthodox churches in the East and Greece and Russia and other areas, monasteries and whatnot that are that are able to actually give us insight into the first three and four centuries of Christian life as people stepped into an awareness of what it literally means to be united with God. Not just simply have a relationship with Jesus, but recognize that that relational aspect of being invited into a family by adoption gives us rights and privileges as children of God. And who is left out of this equation? The cross was for everyone, for all time and eternity, for anyone who will just simply look to Jesus as the author and finisher of their faith, as the savior of the world, the, the one who eradicates sin, who overcomes all of our infirmities, all of our weaknesses, single-handedly saving us to the point where we put our trust in him completely that it really is all about Jesus. These days, I I love the fixation that people have on Jesus uh, from a posture of, of recognizing uh, that, that thank you, Jesus, for saving us so that someday we, we don't have to fear the, the shedding of this mortal life to step into the realm of the unseen in eternity. So that means that after we die, there's a hope of heaven that's awaiting us. But you understand that what the gospel proclaimed was that the power of God was not just meant to save you from this physical age into a heavenly realm where there you would then meet up with Jesus when you die. It was more uh, about the, the entirety of our life being entwined with God 
where like Enoch walking along with God one day just simply moves from one realm into another. And as I read the writings of the early church, the experiences that the first 300 years of Christians had impacting the world with the power of God, not just the message of what Jesus did on the cross to save us from our sins, but the the gospel included what he saved us to, and that is to be sons and daughters with rights and privileges, walking in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit who now dwells within believers. It's amazing how those first 300 years of Christianity have somehow been lost to us. We don't know a whole lot about that period of time, but there's a lot of writing that gives us hints as to how the Holy Spirit, in a time where there's so little distraction, no Netflix, no Facebook, no internet, no iPhones, I mean, what kind of what kind of life can you build with God when all you have is Jesus, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, the message of the gospel. Don't get me wrong. I love the creativity and the storytelling and all the wonderful things that people create that give us the ability to step into another world. Hopefully, it awakens your imagination to the possibility that there is more to this life than just to pay bills and die, more to this life than just the physical world that you see around you, more to this life than just the the normal physical experience that people have. You know, think about 300 years, though. It doesn't seem like a long time when you think of it in the span of the last 2,000 years since the cross. But you know, the reality is <laughs> our nation isn't even that old. When you think of all of the history wrapped up in this nation alone, the nation, the United States of America, in less than 300 years, and think about how little we know of the Christians of the first three centuries I think it's important for us to go back and see, what did they have? I mean, did they accomplish anything in those first three centuries? Well, they actually did. Those Christians in their day made such an impact on the known world. Then Constantine, the global leader at the time, essentially, came to Christ, came to faith in Jesus Christ. And isn't that what everybody wants today? They think this is going to be the salvation of society. If we can just get a world ruler who is a Christian, a world ruler who believes in Jesus, well, that's happened before, and it didn't serve us well. I mean, granted, there was a lot of persecution that that, that the first three centuries of Christians dealt with that Constantine brought to an end, and thankfully, people could finally worship freely. So there was some amazing benefits, but what it produced was a society that that legalized Christianity in force. And essentially, what we're dealing with is a world today that hopes we will go back to that that forces people to become Christians, forces people in a sense where this country only tolerates Christianity. And and by law, if you don't adhere to that, then you don't belong here. I think a lot of people think that that is, that's utopia. That's the thing that we want. I mean, you know, but the, the fact is, is that doesn't serve us well. Jesus doesn't even, uh, God doesn't even restrict people to, to a place where you absolutely have to adhere to this in order to even have a heartbeat or a breath. 
you know, he gives us freedom. He gives us liberty and, and liberty and freedom are necessary for people to come to a revelation of, of a knowledge of God who by his very nature is love because love can only be experienced in the context of choice. And I think a lot of people are pressing toward a society where where the choice to believe in anything other than Jesus is completely taken away. And if you didn't want to do that, then, well, you shouldn't even be. You shouldn't even exist. You should, And you wonder, how in the world can things like the Crusades even come about? Well, it's that mentality of forcing people to come to uh, a belief in Christ. You're going to worship Jesus or else kind of a concept. And that's not the way this thing works. Jesus Christ came to give himself freely to us, to reconcile us back to himself. On the cross, there was something that happened that gave us access to something in God we we don't fully today yet grasp. So I want to just come back around one more time. You're just saying the first three centuries of Christians... They had something. They walked in something. There was, a, there was a measure of anointing and grace that these people walked in that we still don't fully understand. Matter of fact, I would say that we've lost something. And part of the loss of that was people came into Christ and, and in the fourth century, it was nominal Christianity that came about. In other words, Christians in name only. They have no interest in Jesus at all, but they became, they became cultural Christians because that was the norm of the day. It was a forced norm upon people because the ruler of the world at the time said it had to be so. And so multitudes of people said, fine, I'll believe in Jesus just, just because I have to. And I have no doubt that there were people that were introduced to a faith in Christ because of that pressing of that pressure upon them to do so. I have no doubt of that, but it created all kinds of controversies and ideas and complicated the faith so much that we, we pushed aside the theophany of the appearance of God, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to start arguing about theology. It's why the Nicene Creed was even needed for us to somehow define that Jesus was very God of very God, that Jesus and the Father were one, that, that Jesus was not just one of us who became like God because he somehow lived a perfect sinless life. No, that Jesus was the incarnation of God into human flesh. We had to argue about that in the Nicene Creed, in the Council of Nicaea. In the early 300s, we had to argue about this entire concept back and forth as leaders of the church. Why? Because in the short 25 or so years from the time that Christianity was forced upon people, suddenly there was all these ideas about how this thing works in formula as opposed to how God is known by presence, by simply following his presence. As in Mark uh, uh, chapter 16, verse 20, speaks about how the disciples went all over the world preaching the gospel. Why did they carry the same message? Because the word is synergos. The Holy Spirit synergized their message. God was literally pulling them together and knitting them together because they were decentralized from human leadership to the point where they were led by 
Christ himself, who was always meant to be the head of the church. Could it be that those first three centuries of Christians who didn't have a single figure, leader, figurehead, uh, lording over them in a sense from a human capacity were so synergized in their message because they actually believed that Ephesians chapter four had come to pass. The apostles, prophets, uh, pastors, and teachers were there for the equipping of the saints, for the ministry, for the working of the of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith, to the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ, under the headship of Christ. Could it be that for, for perhaps more than two centuries, and to three centuries of Christians lived in such a way that there was such a, 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 let's say, plugging in to the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives that they realized that the the fivefold ministry of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers had run its course, had done its job, and that we reverted, in a sense, back to needing the human fivefold ministry church because we perhaps stepped back away from the maturity that we had begun to walk in, from the power that we had begun to walk. How do we know that's the case? Because you read the stories of these early Christians and, and how they treated laws of nature like they were suggestions, how raising the dead was, was not an uncommon practice. How common is it today? In civilized countries, almost never hear about anything about this. Maybe second, third-hand information, questionable sources at best. Listen, these guys apparently in the in the early church, in the first 300 years of Christianity, these people walked in the miraculous in such a way that it was commonplace. Story of, is told of a desert father named Abbasiosis who, who is leading a group of young people to a, a revelation of who Christ is in them, the hope of glory. In other words, the joyful expectation, the power of heaven manifesting upon your life and flowing through your life is supposed to be common. And so a widow comes to him and she's weeping and she says, she says, I, I, I don't know what to do. Uh, my husband died, but he borrowed this money from a man and this man is uh, uh, threatening to take me and my children into slavery because we can't pay back the money because we don't know where my husband hid the money that he borrowed. And the Abbasiosi says, take us to this man, the, the, the dead man, not the living man, the dead man. She takes him to where her husband is laying in, in death and, and he cries out to God. And next thing you know, says to the dead man, where have you hidden the money? And the dead man responds and answers, comes back to life to reveal where the money's been hidden. And Abbasiosis finally says, now sleep until your resurrection. In other words, he he raises him up, then puts him back down again. Why he didn't keep him alive, I have no idea. But the men that are with this guy, this this desert father who walked in this kind of power, the men who are with him fall down on the ground in absolute fear. They can't believe what they've just seen. And Abbasiosis, this is the point of the story. He looks and raises them up and he says, stand to your feet. He says, this is not a great matter. The Lord has done this because of the widow and because of the orphan. In other words, all the power of God flows through love. And he says, yet what God desires most is a soul that is pure. 
In other words, he points all the way back to this idea that, listen, the biggest miracle of all is that you actually walk in the purity and the grace that Jesus paid for on the cross. It's not raising the dead that's the great miracle. It's the fact that you and I live by the grace of God. That, that's amazing. Stop and think about the idea of raising somebody from the dead and not exploiting it to write a book or build a ministry, but purely because God loves and cares for people and wants their, their needs taken care of here on this earth, but gives us power and authority to live and move and have our being in the Holy Spirit. Could it be that that early church, those early Christians transcended their need for the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers because they had so plugged into the headship of Christ. For those first three centuries, you can see writers putting out there things that they they saw, they heard, they learned from the Lord. But the reality is we don't even know who was actually the point person, the human being that was leading during those times, who did the people look to? There was always, uh, you know, desert fathers had disciples around them, but that was the deal. We were all supposed to be making disciples. You become a disciple of someone until you begin to realize the truth of the identity of who you are, then you turn and do the exact same thing. Every man was a minister. Every person was a pastor in a sense. Everyone was called to to replicate the discipleship process that had happened in their own life. That's what keeps us from looking at the first three centuries of Christianity and saying, oh, here's the Billy Graham of that day, or here's the person that everybody can point to in, in these decades and say they were leading the denomination. There was no denomination. There was only Christ. I just want to rip all of the complication division that we've just created today back down the simplicity of things. You say, why wouldn't we have advanced from that time? It's the same way that the old covenant was. You start with 10 laws, you end with 613. And the complication creates concepts of God that caused us to crucify the incarnate son of God when he's standing before us. Today, we have, I believe, done the exact same thing with the new covenant that the Pharisees did with the old covenant, and we have complicated the theophany, the appearance of Christ, with the theology, the rules of engagement, the terms of engagement. How do we even get to know? Listen, let's come back to the scriptures again. It's almost like the Council of Nicaea was a necessary moment of clarification that was not necessary for the first three centuries of Christianity because people were so deeply connected to the heart of the Father because of the Holy Spirit. But when Christianity is forced, in a sense, upon a society, and people are forced to say yes to Jesus before they even have a knowledge of him or develop a love for him, then we live by theology. We live by dogma. And and, and the reality is, there was three uh, parts to the process of bringing people to Christ. I think I've talked about this in past podcasts, but remember this with me again. There was three parts of the first three centuries. Bringing people to Christ was a three-part process, and it went like this. You, you bring people to a knowledge of God. They know about God. And then the, the greater the knowledge of God, their heart would be stirred to fall in love with him. That's the idea. You know God first then you love God. And the third step, final step, was when you 
have so soaked, pickled, marinated, saturated in a knowledge of God that it awakens a heart of love within you for the Lord, for Jesus, then you give yourself to him. Lay your life down and surrender. Look at how the pattern has changed to today. See, today, the first thing is give your life to him. Isn't that modern Christian fundamentalist evangelicalism? Cares if you know about him, give your life to him. It's not, it's not an issue of even knowing about him. Loving him is even an option now. You don't even have to love him. Just give your life to him. Because for whatever reason, we think giving your life to Jesus is the thing that saves you. You know why the knowledge of God and the stirring of the love for God in a person's heart was what they started with? Because they believed in what the cross had done to save us. They, they believed that the cross saved us. It wasn't your prayer that saved you. It wasn't your giving your life to Jesus that saved you. It was Jesus himself that saved you. And he saved you on the cross single-handedly. Salvation had been paid for. And now you and I have, have, have access to this gift. And it wasn't giving our lives to Jesus that was the starting point. It was knowing God that was the starting point. And once you begin to know God, the intrigue of knowing God drew you to an awareness of his presence to the point where the more you get to know him, you know what stirs in you? It's not fear. It was love. This is the deal. It wasn't fear. The more these people knew God, the more they loved God. That's why Abbasioses and his disciples around him, he raises the guy from the dead. The disciples immediately react in fear because this is why we react to things we don't understand. They fall down on the ground in fear. And what, what does he do? He raises them up. And he says, look, no, 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 God does us miracles, works by supernatural power because of love, because he loves this widow and he loves this orphan. And what God desires most, most is a soul that is sinless, a soul that's pure. In other words, the love of God compels us to change the way we think. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. This was the message of the early church, and that is you're saved by Jesus Christ alone because of the cross. You need to get to know this God who has saved you by his grace. When you know him and you get to know him in all of his glory, you're going to love him. And as you love him and give your life to him, you're going to begin to realize your union with him in this relationship of love creates a theosis where the, the, the power of Christ actually becomes alive within you, where you become, uh, as I say so many times, the Holy of Holies is wherever the Holy Spirit dwells and he dwells in you, that you're the carrier of the glory of God, so you're the ark of the new covenant of Christ. This is the life that these guys lived. How did we lose this? Where did we go where we threw this away? And now all we do is argue on Facebook about what God is like. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, it says, We do not look at the things that are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. In other words, what are we doing? we got to fixate our eyes on an unseen realm, the realm that transcends the limitations of this physical life. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves living far below what God has intended for us to live in. John, John chapter 16, starting in verse 12, Jesus said, I have so many things that I want to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you of things to come and he will glorify me. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. This is Jesus talking about things that are about to happen to them in the future. He doesn't say this is for your descendants. He doesn't say that this is for many, many generations from now, or this is for the end times, uh, the end times uh, fanatics uh, thousands of years into the future who are constantly going to be predicting the end of the world all over again. No, this is what he says. He says, you, I have so many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. This was a quick process that was about to trigger a lifestyle that these early Christians walked in, that is your inheritance and my inheritance. Let me just read this to you again. This is Jesus talking. I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. In other words, I have so many things I want to reveal to you, but this is not the time for you to be able to understand them. What was happening here? The cross hadn't happened yet. And when the cross took place and Jesus resurrected from the dead, in Acts chapter 1, he took them through 40 days where he spoke to them about all things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Whatever he revealed in that moment, in that time, is available to you and I today. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's been given to us. Which is why I don't think any of the New Testament writers feel the need to write about that 40 days because everything that he said was available to every person in their heart because of the Holy Spirit. I think I'm talking about some of these things to you today right now. Here's what the Spirit does, the Holy Spirit that you have access to, that lives inside of you, Christian, says he will guide you into all truth. Not some truth, not partial truth, but all truth to the point that you and I are surrendered to the guidance of the Holy Spirit is the degree to which we walk in the truth of what God has intended for us. Let me say that again. To the point to which you and I are willing to be surrendered to the guidance of the Holy Spirit is the degree to which we walk in the truth that God has appointed for us to walk in. The Holy Spirit here goes on in John 16. He will not speak in his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. So what was the method by which Jesus did all the things he did in this earth? He says, I only do what I see the Father do, and I say what I hear the Father say. So he was living his life as a man surrendered to the same exact connection to the Father that you and I have. And the Holy Spirit descended on Christ in, in the river in Jordan. That was the moment where he, okay, I'm going to model life for you, humanity. I'm going to model, this is how it looks, to let the Holy Spirit rest upon you, the very Spirit of God that connects you. It's that connecting point to the very heart of God, no distance and no separation. So now you and I live by the Spirit of God. Live walking by the Spirit of God. Think about that with me for just a moment. You and I have the exact same access to the Father by the Holy Spirit that Jesus did. So then we can live the exact same lifestyle that Jesus led and the early Christians did it. 
See, the fivefold ministry is a gift to the church, but it's a temporary placeholder for the purpose of bringing us into this place here where the Holy Spirit is so prevalent within us that he guides us into all truth. He speaks by the authority of God. And it says he glorifies Jesus. It says he will speak and tell you of things to come. Not of like the end time stuff. Things to come means what are the decisions and the choices I need to make in the days ahead. In other words, he's speaking personally for your own life, the things that you are to do in this life in the days ahead so that you don't blindly walk into the future without direction and without hope. He will glorify Jesus. He will take what belongs to Jesus and he will, says, declare it to you. In other words, he will make clear to you the authority that you have because of who you are in Christ. Do you know who you are? Do you know the power you walk in? Oh my goodness, listen, I'm at the end of my time today. You can go back and listen to this again on podcasts, on Apple, on iTunes, on Spotify. And go to our website, BillVanderbush.com or VanderbushMinistries.com. Listen, I'm so grateful for all of you who've taken the time to be with us today. If you like to write old-fashioned letters, you can write to us at Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. Uh, you can also jump online at BillVanderbush.com and listen to this broadcast or podcast again. Subscribe to the Faith Mountain Ministries podcast or the Bill Vanderbush podcast. And uh, those are updated every single week. Listen, we love you guys so much. Thanks so much for being a part of this broadcast, for being a part of our lives as you welcome us in to be a part of your life. We're all over the nation this summer and this fall. Check out the schedule at BillVanderbush.com. And if we're in your area, please come and say hi. Till next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.